Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 15, Coffee Cold War. Grab your favorite ice beverage and let's get started. I want to start this episode by thanking you all for your patience. I know it took some time for the release of episode 15. I not only took off some time to enjoy the holidays, but I also started working as a bartender recently and have been spending a lot of time learning about beer and cocktails. More importantly though, I took some time to remap out the next few episodes. So as a result, I decided to center this episode around one of the most interesting rivalries to take place in the history of coffee. One which resulted in a cold war between coffee and sugar. But first, let's begin where we left off last time in the origin of coffee brands we all know today. There is one household name in particular we all know, for better or worse, which was born in the last decade of the 19th century. Folgers. Jim Folger and his two older brothers ventured from Nantucket to San Francisco. The Folger name was associated with whale hunting in Nantucket, so much so they were mentioned in the line for Moby Dick, quote, a long line of Folgers and harpooners, end quote. During this period, as sperm whales neared extinction, the gold rush was just taking off in San Francisco. However, Jim Folger, unlike his brothers, did not go to California to mine for gold. Instead, he began working with William Booby in 1850 for the company Pioneer Steam Coffee and Spice Mills. There was, however, no steam engine at this time, and the coffee had to be turned by hand. Still, though, the coffee was very successful among gold miners. The following year, Beauvais obtained a steam engine and set up a larger operation. At 18, Jim was running a coffee stand called Yankee Jim, with a miner from the area writing, quote, The young man from Nantucket, Jim Folger, is most courageous. At his tender age, he has more sense than most of us, end quote. By 1858, he was working as a clerk and traveling salesman for Pioneer Steam Coffee and Spice Mills, now a partner in the company with Ira Marden, who bought Bovier's half of the company. Following the Civil War in 1865, the company went bankrupt, and Jim bought out his partner for the complete control of the company. By the 1870s, he rebranded the company as J.A. Folger & Company. The United States, during the Civil War, began improving upon packaging and branding foods. As a result of this, coffee became more easily bought in package form, as opposed to buying it out of a large barrel full of beans. With Chase and Sanborn's innovation of using sealed cans of coffee and the introduction of vacuum packaging by Hills Brothers in 1900, Folger and other coffee companies could ship their coffee across the country and internationally. These coffees were often pre-ground, and as a result, by 1915, 85% of consumers preferred pre-ground packaged coffee over bags of whole bean. Interestingly, though, most of these brand coffees weren't sold in stores, with around 60% being delivered by door-to-door -door companies, such as the Jewel Tea Company. Store-sold coffee was more common among large companies who sold their own brands, such as the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, who sold their brand 8 o'clock coffee. 
They even went as far as wooing their customers with theater, as they called it, adding coffee grinders to their stores. I don't know if I would call that theater, especially as grinders are generally assumed to be found in many stores today, but perhaps we can call it performance art. Yeah, it's okay. I'm not a huge performance art person either. During the 20th century, America made coffee a sort of national beverage, consuming over half of the world's supply of coffee. The average American was drinking around 11 pounds of coffee a year, with coffee brands using inherently American names such as Buffalo and Uncle Sam's Coffee. Coffee brands also left the origin of their coffees vague, with names and images which suggested oriental or faraway places. Java and Mocha were the only commonly acknowledged coffee sources becoming known by cowboys as Jamocha. Around this time in 1878, Jevy's Burns began the Spice Mill publication, the first of its kind to cover coffee, tea, and spice. It was called the Spice Mill because they planned to cover material in a spicy way to confront habits, tricks, and frauds to powder. Burns encouraged sample batches of coffee and quick, hot roasting over slower baking of coffee. One way roasters attempted to add weight to their coffee was by under-roasting or by adding water after it was finished roasting. This was because coffee loses anywhere from 15 to 20% of its weight from roasting as water leaves the bean while it grows to double the size as it roasts. By not roasting as long, there is less water loss, and by adding water after the roasting process, the coffee will reabsorb water. However, both of these methods yielded subpar coffee, as under-roasting creates a bitter, underdeveloped flavor, and adding too much water after a roast can cause water logging. Similarly, some coffee manufacturers, like Ariosa, utilize glazes, as it is still done by many today, to preserve freshness. But Burns found some were doing so in excess to create additional weight. Mixing coffee with other things like chicory was acceptable in Burns' opinion, so long as the product displayed it was a mix. And it was commonplace at the time for coffee to be mixed without advertising as so. The author Francis Thurber wrote of a story from a restaurant where he asked them to bring him all of their chicory. And once they were completely out, he ordered his cup of coffee. While a strong advocate for better coffee production, Burns cared little for human rights inequality. He included racist comments in his publications, and he was strongly against the feminist movement. His attitude was unfortunately not uncommon in the coffee industry at this time. Beyond simply mixing items with coffee, some manufacturers would also add coloring to the coffee to make it yellow, green, or black. These color additives were typically produced using lead and arsenic, both potentially fatal to consume. The coloring was done as a way to increase price on cheap Latin American coffee, sometimes even advertising it as being from Java or Mocha, as those coffees were often worth more. However, in reality, as we talked about previously in our episode on Latin America, most coffee in the U.S. was being imported from Brazil by the 19th century. 
Slavery was the primary form of workforce to produce the coffee which the U.S. consumed and re-exported. As to the question of the general public knowledge of such slavery on plantations, it seems the average American coffee drinker did in fact know this, but chose to purchase such coffee anyway. Coffee was not alone in this. Tobacco and cotton were also produced through slavery and still consumed by Americans. Only slave-grown sugar was boycotted in the U.S. As we know, America in fact preferred slave production goods from Saint-Domingue and began boycotting Haiti after its revolution. I don't want to dive too deep into Latin America now because we will cover more on the next episode. But needless to say, as America began purchasing more and more coffee, Brazil utilized its fertile land and slave labor to keep the cost of coffee stable. There was a near collapse of the coffee market in the U.S. in 1880, following the death of O.G. Kimball, a giant in the American coffee industry. Although his name does sound like it could be a bit of a rapper name. His death unfortunately sparked paranoia among fellow wealthy coffee business owners surrounding if his suicide was in fact murder. Essentially, many coffee businesses closed temporarily and the coffee market lost a considerable amount of money. As results of the crash, a coffee exchange was established almost exactly one year after his death. This new exchange hoped to prevent future crashes, acting very much so as Wall Street does today for the stock exchange, even including people in a frenzy yelling over the sell and trade of coffee. I don't want to get too bogged down in economic history, but some highlights include the slaughter of the bulls in 1887, when a group of Brazilians attempted to increase the price of coffee, ultimately leading to a plummet in price and a loss of their money in the ever-growing coffee exchange. In contrast, an economic boom for coffee took place in 1899 after Brazil experienced an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Also in the 1890s was the introduction of underwater communication lines allowing the coffee exchange to track coffee exporting, shipping, and cost more directly. By the turn of the century, the coffee exchange had effectively achieved its goal of regulating the coffee market. Well, that and the fact the coffee market had grown to such an extent it became nearly impossible to manipulate the coffee market with the mass amount of beans being produced each year. The effect was certainly being felt by coffee-growing countries in 1901 and 1902, when a flood of coffee beans to the global market meant coffee farmers were now in a weak position to ask for more money, leading many to lose everything as coffee prices dropped. Okay, so I know normally I do the coffee tasting at the beginning of the episode, but I figured it might be a nice little switch up and a break from all the monotony of history to take a second and do our coffee tasting in the middle of the episode. So today we're going to be trying a whiskey barrel aged coffee from Bluegrass Coffee Company. I found this over in Colorado. I decided to make it as a cold brew, and I feel like that's going to go a little bit with what we're starting to get into with the story of the coffee versus sugar cold war. So to pair with it, I also brought along barrel-aged whiskey since I figured it'd be a nice little contrast between the two. Now this is from Tractor Brewing Company here in New Mexico. So let's go ahead and start with smelling the coffee. 
So I'm definitely getting like a very sweet, very smooth profile on it. Um, you almost get a little bit of the whiskey kind of smell. So let me see in comparison to this. Yeah, there's there's almost a similar smooth sweetness to the two. Um, obviously, this one's going to smell a little bit stronger in the alcohol sense than this one in the coffee. So let's try tasting it. Honestly, overall, pretty smooth. Um, there's light acidity to it. But overall, it's actually a, a pretty good tasting coffee. So let me compare that to the whiskey, and obviously most people are going to be sipping on whiskey, but let's see. It is interesting, there's almost um, a similar taste between the two. I mean, if you really find that whiskey barrel-aged flavor within it, um, obviously uh, the bourbon is a lot stronger, and the coffee is a little bit more smooth. A war between coffee and sugar was brewing. We previously discussed the coffee giant, John Arbuckle. His company, Ariosa, began shipping coffee out west, often to veterans of the Civil War, who had developed a love for coffee during their time in the war. They sent out peppermint sticks with their coffee as a pairing for it, with the peppermint acting as a sweet counter to the taste to help those who were less used to the bitterness of coffee. To entice cowboys out there, they offered coupons with their coffee for tools, guns, razors, as well as curtains and wedding rings for those ready to settle down. They didn't forget about Native Americans either, suggesting their coffee could be used for spiritual practices, as one could experience a caffeine buzz. And for Spanish speakers, their catalog in Santa Fe was printed in Spanish, as a side note, Santa Fe is the capital of the state I'm from, New Mexico, and is where Wayward Sons, the distillery I did an interview with, is located. Getting into the war between sugar and coffee. See, the glaze Arbuckle used on his coffee used sugar as its key ingredient. He initially purchased his sugar from the king of the sugar trade, H.O. Havmeyer. But he decided to grow his coffee empire into a sugar one as well. This decision in 1896 led to conflict between the two empires. Havmeyer spoke with Herman Silkland about building his own coffee empire to wage war in response. Silken recommended the Lion Coffee brand as it was popular with women, the largest buyers of coffee at this time. So Havmeyer sent Silkland to purchase nearly every stock of the Wolfson Spice Company. The Sugar King then used a tactic he had so successfully utilized in the sugar market against competitors. He dropped the price of his coffee. According to Arbuckle, he cut the price to one cent a pound, which came as a surprise since he was unaware of the change in ownership. However, later that same day, he was informed of the company's new owner and stated, quote, Then we knew it was war. So determined to crush Arbuckle, Havmeyer began purchasing low-quality Brazilian beans and selling his coffee at low prices even when it meant losing money. 
a meeting between the men occurred at Havmeyer's home. Havmeyer opened, I want to buy 51% of your refinery. Arbuckle responded, Mr. Havmeyer, as long as I live and have my sense, you'll never own a dollar's worth of it. But this world is big enough for all of us. Havmeyer replied, well, I have got 11,000 stockholders to take care of. And appearing to be from a children's book, Arbuckle stated, you could take care of them a good deal better by treating others in a more kindly way. Unfortunately, the meeting led to no change, and a cold war ensued between the two men. Taking a page out of Havmeyer's book, Arbuckle began selling his sugar at a lower price, even when it meant losing money. Further, a friend of Arbuckle owned most of the remaining shares in Wilson Spice Company, the coffee brand taken over by the Sugar King. His friend, a man named Thomas Kuhn, took Havmeyer to court for purchasing the company in an attempt at, quote, crushing of the Arbuckle brothers and compelling them to abandon their intentions of engaging in the sugar business, end quote. Kuhn stated the company had been losing $1,000 a day as a result of the drop in coffee prices. The court, however, ruled in Havmeyer's favor. This did not stop Arbuckle, however, as he took his rival's company to court, demanding to see the company's books as he was a stockholder in Wilson and inquired as to why he had not been paid any dividends for his stock. While the company was found in contempt of court for not complying, ultimately, Havmeyer was successful in settling out of court, and Arbuckle never saw the company books. Wilson Spice Company was centered in Ohio, contributing a lot of money to the state economy. So Havmeyer capitalized on this by getting Ohio's Dairy and Food Commissioner to go after Ariosa. The commissioner publicly attacked Ariosa for using cheap coffee and an unnecessary glazing even reaching out to grocery stores to persuade them from buying the brand. Arbuckle took him to court for his allegations, going all the way up to the Supreme Court. Order in the court! The chief of the Division of Chemistry for the U.S. Department of Agriculture even testified as to the high quality of Ariosa's coffee and how the glaze helped to keep the coffee fresh for longer. Ultimately, though, the Supreme Court stayed out of the coffee cold war and no action was taken. It made little consequence, however, as Arbuckle was able to sell nearly a quarter of all coffee in the U.S., even after Havmeyer's repeated attempts at crushing Ariosa. Ariosa's name out west made it hard for Havmeyer to compete with, except for claims aimed at Native Americans of the image on Lion Brand granting those who drank it the power of a lion. However, an Arbuckle salesman, Mose Drachman, spoke with native tribal leaders in New Mexico and Arizona, pointing out the image of an angel on Ariosa and the strength an angel has over a lion. Arbuckle was ingrained in the society out west, with buildings often being built from Arbuckle crates and people finding the brand to be there quite literally from life to death as crates were used in the construction of cradles and coffins. Arbuckle, for all of its glory, was apparently racist, however, referring to black Southerners as the Negroes who love possum hunting and playing banjo, tambourine, and bones. The Coffee Cold War lasted about six years, ending in 1903, although the two men had slowly developed a sort of respect for each other over the years. The end came after Arbuckle sent a letter to Havmeyer stating, quote, you know more about sugar than I do. 
and I know more about coffee than you do, end quote. Although Arbuckle himself even stated they never declared an official armistice, it is also possible Havmeyer gave up for financial reasons, having lost $15 million in the war which he had launched on Arbuckle. Arbuckle walked out the financial winner of the war with a loss of only $1.5 million. Keep in mind, $15 million around 1900 would be worth over a half billion today. Hatmeyer passed away in 1907, leaving behind the ruined Wilson Coffee Company. His partner, Herman Sicklin, the man who gave him the idea to buy Wilson Company in the first place to compete with Arbuckle, purchased the company for a fraction of its former value. Silkland's legacy would be in helping to save the Brazilian and, more broadly, the world coffee market. But that'll be for next time. Coffee by this point has become a global product, fast becoming one of the most popular drinks in the world. But the road ahead is not on the straight and narrow. As just like coffee's cold war with sugar, coffee would soon face another war, this time with tea. There's a war coming, one which will span most of the world. It will be a war to end all wars. I speak, of course, of the First World War. This show is written and produced by me, Aaron Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in the series. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us directly through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, and make sure to share it with your family and friends. At the start of the episode, we mentioned Folgers in relation to Moby Dick, but another coffee giant actually got their name from the novel, Starbucks. So, to close, here's a quote from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. What has he in his hands, then? cried Starbuck, pointing to something wavingly held by the German. Impossible. A lamp feeder? Not that, said Stubb. No, no. It's, it's a coffee pot, Mrs. Starbuck. He's coming off to make us our coffee. Is the yarman.